primary care knowledge boost headaches. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we're talking to consultant neurologist Dr. Matt Jones about headaches. Yep, we're mostly focusing on the diagnosis of them. So we talk through where he starts when he's taking a history, how he categorizes them, um, red and amber flags, as well as who to admit on the day. Yeah, and then we go through who he would consider examining, particularly at the moment with all the COVID restrictions and some helpful tips about management for some of the common headaches as well. We hope you enjoy. Would you like to introduce yourself to start off with? Yep, no problem. So uh, my name is Matt Jones and I'm a consultant neurologist at uh, the Manchester Centre for Clinical Neurosciences, which is based at Salford Royal. Fabulous. Perfect. Lovely. And so today's talk is all about headaches, um, but we're going to focus on diagnosis, if that's okay, and how to try and differentiate between the different types of headache. Um, So where do you start? So when you're first seeing someone with a headache, what do you do first? So, I mean, I think the first thing I do is I think back to a few what I, what I reckon are golden rules or sort of nuggets. And if you hold these things in mind, it makes assessing patients with headache symptoms a whole lot easier. So the first is that the vast majority of headaches that you see are migraine or a form of migraine. Okay. And that's true from, you know, real life experience, but also from epidemiology. It's by far the commonest headache disorder. About 15% of the population have migraine. And it is an order of magnitude more common than any other headache disorder. Not everyone who has migraine is diagnosed with it. Yeah. Some people don't know they've got it. Some people's doctors don't know they've got it. And some people have misdiagnosed with another headache, commonly tension headache, which in actual fact may not really exist. Okay. Controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Because the majority of people with tension headache are really describing chronic migraine. Okay. You do get a bit of tension headache, but it's rare. So that's the first thing to remember. So basically, most of what you have to deal with is migraine. Mm Mm-hmm. So the second thing is that an individual's experience of their headache, which is usually migraine, so their symptoms and their lived experience of it will vary enormously Mm -hmm. because people are different. So you do have to go specifically digging for migraine features to find them. People won't automatically tell you. And thirdly, and reassuringly, most serious brain disorders don't present with headache. So there's a general misconception at sort of the public level, if you like, that headaches must be something serious like brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Brain tumors very rarely cause headache. They present with a loss of function or a seizure. And that's why as a neurologist, someone's first seizure gets me quite anxious, whereas someone's headache doesn't. And if you bear those three things in mind, um, it does make life a bit easier when you're seeing patients with headache. Yeah. So what I normally do is to start off with someone has a headache, I just, you know, ask them to describe their headache to me, just pretty open-ended. And then fairly rapidly move to a series of closed questions which are deliberately looking for migraine features. And that will be, you know, they're the features that are present with the headache at the current time. But if it's a headache that's been going on a long time, I might need to go back to how it started because people's headaches at the outset are often, if you like, canonical or typical or classical. And then the longer someone has a headache disorder, the more murky it gets with medications and different diagnoses and stress and worry, the more difficult it can be to pick out the classical features in that person's headache yeah that's very true and that's why the people that you see don't seem to fit into that classical pattern because you're seeing them late you know a long way down the line Mm -hmm. yeah and in actual fact if you'd seen them on day one or day 14 you'd have had no problem saying well you've got a migraine yeah makes it more difficult and uh, can you talk us through the kind of important questions that you do ask that help you differentiate between the different types of headaches 
Yeah. So I think, you know, most of us diagnose conditions based on our knowledge of, of illness scripts. We've built up this, you know, backlog of cases that we recognize. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there are sort of four classical presentations of headache. Okay. So the first is classical episodic migraine. And it's a young person and they come with throbbing headaches, which can be unilateral or bilateral. And I don't care which. I think far too much emphasis is put on it having to be unilateral. Mm-hmm. The headache was severe. That's the key thing. It's, it's, not, it's, not a hot, it's not a nice thing. In terms of severity level, it's moderate to severe. Stops you doing something normally. And it lasts hours to days. And then the things you need to go specifically looking for are photophobia, phonophobia, mechanophobia, so movement making the headache worse, osmophobia, smell making it worse. And you need to ask that quite carefully because patients often don't even know they have those symptoms. All they know or all they feel able to describe are the functional consequences of those symptoms. For instance, I need to go lie down in a dark room. The reason they do that is because it makes their headache better. The reason it makes their headache better is because they've avoided light, movement and sound. But patients may not be necessarily insightful into that. And that patient may well be nauseated. They may vomit. Um, Some patients get an aura. Some patients don't. And once again, don't worry too much about that because only a quarter of patients with migraine have an aura. Okay. What um, what about timeframes and stuff in terms of that? Because I remember back to medical school teaching, it was always about like aura under an hour and something about four hours to be classified as a migraine and all of these bits. Yeah. So typically, typically migraine headaches are sort of a minimum of three hours and they go upwards from there. Mm-hmm. And obviously you'd normally say, you know, a couple of days, but, but that's not really true because we know patients can have chronic migraine that can last years. So the upper limit is sort of endless, really. Okay. But um, uh, headaches lasting, you know, less than, less than a few hours probably aren't migraine unless the patient has taken an effective anti-migraine treatment because they're designed to stop it, obviously. Yeah. Um, in terms of aura, it's typically pretty brief, actually. So we're talking minutes. Um, but you definitely get patients who have migraine aura lasting an hour. Okay. Uh, and it's pretty unusual for migraine aura to last longer than an hour. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. And with migraine aura, obviously the common is the visual aura, and it's a spreading phenomenon. So it starts in one part of the visual field and spreads over minutes to affect other parts of the visual field. And it's interesting because it's often a, a mix of positive and negative phenomena. So they get a loss of vision or a blurring of vision plus some extra vision like speckles, zigzags, scintillating, typically black and white um, sort of artifacts in their vision. Okay. Um, but the spreading aura of migraine can sort of involve other sensory modalities. Um, so a spreading tingling sensation, typically down one side, differentiable from, uh, you know, like a stroke, for instance, because it, it, it spreads over minutes. It's a gradual process and the patient describes that and it spreads more slowly than a seizure would spread. Because that's the other thing that can give you sort of sensory disturbance that spreads. That spreads rapidly in seconds. Mm. Um, Some patients get uh, speech arrest or difficulty getting their words out. That's quite common, actually, with a migraine. And sometimes that's a genuine aura. Or sometimes it's just they're so stricken by pain, they just can't get their words out. And that's sometimes where you find someone says, well, you know, I I couldn't speak for a day. And it's it's not an aura that's lasted a day. It's just they had an absolute blinder behind the eyes. Um, and then they couldn't speak because of it, because of pain. And that sort of description of a blinder behind the eyes, that's, that's often what people say with classical migraine. It's behind the eye, it's one eye more, normally more than the other. And it almost feels like the eye is being pushed out. It's so severe. I mean, those are the patients that get picked up, I think, generally speaking, as having migraine. Yeah. Although for many people, it won't happen very often. They probably won't ever see a doctor about it. And then they may present later in life with other headaches. 
that are migrants and they don't have a migrant history. But of course they do. It's just it's just buried down there somewhere. Yeah, those people who've had one or two headaches in the past that they've not quite recognised as a migraine. I, I think sometimes it's really difficult to get patients to tell you that um, because yeah. they just don't think of it as significant when they're coming in now with their really severe daily headaches that are very different. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's quite useful to really go digging in that past because it might be easier to try and try and diagnose. Yeah, and that, 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 that's I think the, the you know the second sort of presentation that I like to think about the sort of second classical headache presentation which is the older patient with worsening but still episodic headaches Mm -hmm. and often they are a bit blander rather than the classical sort of migraine but once you go digging for the migraine features they are there so they do have a it does have a throbbing quality to it it does make them feel a bit sick and you know when it's at its most severe they're intolerant of light or sound or motion or smell or all or four of these things and then you know you've sort of classified it as a migraine phenotype and then the only odd thing is they're a bit older than you'd expect yeah but if you go back into their previous history and it turns out that during their teenage years they were prone to monthly headaches they used to go and lie down with them then they're a migraineur and once you're a migraineur you're always a migraineur it's a lifelong condition Mm. typically starts in teenage years or early adulthood often goes a bit quiet for a while and then comes back again later in life either with headaches or sometimes just with migraine aura. There's a whole separate sort of category of older patient who we see presenting in their 50s or 60s with isolated visual aura, which is diagnostically difficult if you haven't realised they're a migraineur because then you're worried about TIAs and all these other sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. And is that the kind of age you mean when you say older patient, sort of getting into the kind of 50s, 60s? Well, as I say, so it's a lifelong condition. It's, it's unusual to present with migraine de novo, genuinely de novo, after the age of 50. Okay. That is unusual. And that's where the rule comes in, if you like, that rule that everyone knows that new onset headaches after the age of 50 get scanned. Um, and that's fair enough, I think, because it is a bit unusual. The vast majority of those patients over 50 with these headaches who get scanned are migraineurs. It's in their history. And, and then, you know, patients in their 30s and 40s, it's not a typical age of onset, but, you know, the, the graph of age of onset of migraine, it peaks in people's teens and 20s. It never goes down to zero, that graph. So people will always present in their 30s and 40s and 50s. It's just not the common peak. Yep. Yeah. So my, my third category of patient that I think about is the chronic daily headache patient. This could be any age, essentially. Now, they normally have migraine features to their headache, although, as I mentioned, they may not be currently experiencing them. It might be something that they used to have before this became quite the sort of, you know, dreadful daily grind of a headache that it is now. So I get them to describe their headache I asked them specifically about the migraine features, nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light, sound, motion and smell. And they often say no. And I say, but what about when it's really bad? What about when you're having a bad day? And they're like, oh, well, it's a bad day. I go to bed. You know, I can't, can't do anything. It's like, right. So you've got a chronic daily headache with severe migraine exacerbations. And these patients, once again, if you dig back into how this all started, this chronic daily headache, normally it started with episodic headaches that just got worse. Yeah. Sometimes you can find out why. I mean, I'm not worried if I don't, but sometimes, you've, you know, it coincided with something else. So, you know, shift changes at work, doing more nights, the birth of a child, sleepless nights, periods of stress, excess caffeine intake, excess alcohol intake, you know, stopping or starting smoking. All of these things are potential triggers. And, and actually those things are much more likely to be a trigger than, you know, chocolate or, or red wine, the sort of classic ones that you get told about in medical school. Yeah. Yeah. Caffeine's interesting, actually. If you're caffeine naive, if you've never had a coffee before, 
and you get your first migraine, a proper blinder behind the eyes, a double espresso will probably abort that migraine. It's a quite oh, an effective really? acute migraine treatment. And caffeine is in quite a few over-the-counter headache remedies. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. But just like lots of other over-the-counter or readily available analgesics, when you start using it regularly, it tends to worsen chronic headaches, by which I mean migraine. Um, so caffeine usage is one of those things that I look at quite hard in these patients with chronic daily headaches. And, and, and then, you know, you get patients for whom a, a change in something is relatively simple as caffeine produces, you know, 50% reduction in headache days in a month, which is probably more efficacious than any drug you're going to give them. Yeah. And then probably the fourth one that I see, and I think this is definitely the trickiest, is the, the nothing works for my headache, chronic headache patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody's seen a patient like that. Um, now, now, these patients almost always had migraine, but now it's become a sort of treatment-resistant chronic daily headache. Um, th- these are the patients that are most time-consuming to unpick because you need to establish through history that they do, in fact, you know, have migraine, and they normally do, how it started. And then you need to work out why it went so bad. And there can be lots of reasons for that. Lifestyle factors, as described, could be playing a part. Failure to diagnose it as migraine and therefore get it treated as something else. So if you don't recognize it as migraine, there might be a temptation just to treat it as chronic pain. And that means you'll end up on chronic painkillers. So we know that that's bad for migraine. It's, it's toxic for migraine, really. And, and the commonest reason for patients to have the nothing helps my headache headache is the fact that they're taking codeine two or three or four times a day. Yeah. And then they're stuck because they're doing something actively that we know makes chronic migraine worse. And at the same time, it's probably going to stop us using efficacious treatment because what's the point in pouring in a good drug? if they're gobbling a bad drug. So that medicine overuse type headache, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very common. Very, very common. Yeah. So does it tend to be opiates um, or is it all painkillers? Uh, opiates are the worst culprit, I think. It's possible to get this with regular paracetamol. Definitely possible to get it with regular paracetamol. You can do it with regular NSAIDs. And of course, it's it, it triptans. Um, you can really do it pretty quickly with triptans, actually, overuse them and get chronic headaches. And remember, to to, to to be causing your migraine to be a difficult-to-treat migraine, you probably only need to be taking you know, regular analgesics on 15 days of the month or more, which isn't very many. No. And can I ask a question? Just I've had a thought about the medication use one. If we've got somebody who um, doesn't normally suffer from, from headaches but is on um, regular medication like that, can that cause a headache or are we talking about people who suffer with headaches and then use medication to treat that? So, so we think that most people that develop the sort of chronic daily headache because of medication overuse, analgesia overuse, are migraineurs. So it seems to be that this migraine tendency predisposes you to the analgesia overuse headache syndrome. Um, but then again, it's such a common headache disorder. It's not, you know, it's difficult to know that, isn't it? So we, yeah, we've talked there, you, you mentioned there the primary um, causes of headaches. What would make you think in a history, like kind of red flags, worrying features, other causes that we might need to pick up and, and refer on from general practice? So I tend to think of it in terms of red flags and, and, and amber flags, maybe. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so, so red flags are sort of like, oh, crikey, there must be something pretty bad here. And luckily, there's few of those. So these are the sorts of this patient's probably going in to see somebody today. So fever and meningism, obviously meningitis isn't it yeah anyone with any suspected meningitis needs to be seen that day so so fever and meningism is 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 one of the red flags definitely a true thunderclap headache is always a red flag yeah it is rare 
So true thunderclap headache is rare. And and the, the medical school description is you've been hit over the back of the head with a cricket bat, which relatively few people have ever had done to them. So quite how widespread this knowledge is, I don't know. <laughs> but, but critically, it has to be sudden in onset. So it has to be severe and it has to be sudden in onset. The thing that people often forget, though, with a thunderclap headache is it has to reach maximal intensity within one to five minutes and then start to get better or at least stop getting worse because sometimes migraines start very quickly but they build up over minutes, minutes, hours, hours, hours. And that's why nine out of 10 patients referred with thunderclap headache don't haven't had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And you'll never guess what most of those patients have had. Migraine. Bad migraine. Yeah, absolutely. The most common reason. There's a theme here. <laughs> so we see the other end of this. So we see them after they've come into the ED or the emergency assessment unit and they've had their spinal reflex level CTLP, which is inevitably normal. So that's a nice place to be sat on that side, because when you're seeing someone on the other side of it, that kind of sending 10 patients in to catch one doesn't sound <laughs> quite as bad. It is, but, but, but the one patient who had it was the one patient with a thunderclap. Yeah. I would prefer to see them before they have the CT and the LP, because otherwise I've got to deal with the fallout from those other two tests, the incidental pineal cyst that they now think is the cause of their headache, <laughs> or alternatively the post-lumbar puncture headache that incapacitates them for days. Like you're right, it's really lovely to have a proper understanding of that maximum intensity. But, you know, a true thunderclap, let's make no mistake about it, it is a definite medical emergency. And, you know, no one's going to get a 100% record of subaracts because some genuine thunderclaps aren't subaracts. You know, they're, they're just an idiopathic thunderclap headache or they've got another possible serious cause because subarachnoid hemorrhage isn't the only cause of, of thunderclap headaches. So we see, you know, occasionally viral meningitis presents with a thunderclap, occasionally... Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis presents with a thunderclap. Obviously, intracerebral hemorrhage can occasionally present with a thunderclap. So all of these are potential worrying headaches. So anyone with a thunderclap definitely goes in, no doubt about it. Yeah. Third red flag is a monocular visual loss in someone over 50 with a headache. So even if the headache isn't very convincing for giant cell arteritis, if they transiently lost vision in one eye, um, they go in for a query GCA um, because that, that, mon- that monocular visual loss is a bad sign. Otherwise, it is a tricky diagnosis, giant cell arteritis. There's nothing that specific about the headache itself. You're relying a lot on the other features. So, for instance, um, when present, jaw claudication or tongue claudication is a really good predictive symptom of giant cell arteritis. But obviously not every patient will get that. It depends on the distribution of their vasculitis. They should genuinely have scalp tenderness. It should be tender to the touch. But that's you know, not that helpful because so many other headache disorders make you tender to the touch. So it, it is a difficult diagnosis. You, you automatically narrow your field down because it has to be someone over 50, really over 55, but, you know, over 50 to be safe. Um, so so that, that's a serious one. Fourth red flag, um, and, and this is this is not always red on the day. You know, it might be amber, two-week wait, but it's new onset headache and new neurological signs. So on examination. This is a tricky one because obviously some patients are walking around all the time with neurological signs because they've got a neurological diagnosis or they've got a bit of a trap disc somewhere, you know what I mean? And and they've got an incidental abnormal sign. So I tend to think of it as new onset headache with a new neurological sign that actually coincides with a symptom they're complaining of. Because most intracranial pathology that's bad enough to cause a headache and bad enough to cause a neurological sign should really be causing loss of function which is how patients will present. They'll present with a symptom. Okay. It's, it's the patient with the new headache and the neurological loss of function and, the, and a sign that matches it. That's obviously very concerning. And then finally, my, my 
fifth one is a new onset headache and a seizure. And obviously then it depends what it's, what, what, what it's come with. So is that a headache and a seizure that's coming in someone who looks a bit feverish and they're a bit confused? That sounds bad. It could be encephalitis. That has to go straight in. Is it somebody who's got a headache and they've had a seizure and, you know, they think their vision's a bit blurry and they've got, you know, swollen optic discs and that could be a venous sinus thrombosis. So that's a bit worrying for a different reason. But but there's just no way in, 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 in which a sort of generalized tonic-clonic seizure isn't worrying me. Yeah. So those are my five, really. Those are my five proper red flags. The, 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 other, the other sort of amber flags are other patients who've just got, you know, a headache that is progressively worsening and it's causing a loss of function, whether that be a visual disturbance or whether they think something's happening with their balance or their gait. But, you know, there's nothing objective to find on examination. That is still worrying, isn't it? I, I'd want, you know, to see that person. And is that so together, the progressive nature and the loss of mm. function? How worried are you about just progressive headaches? Well, normally not very worried because it's normally migraine. <laughs> yeah, because they're normally doing something that's making it progress. So they're normally taking more and more codeine and more and more caffeine. They're persisting and working crazy shifts. Their stress is getting on top of them. And there's normally something that's driving it. So the progressive nature in and of itself isn't the alarming feature. It's when it's associated with a loss of function. Yeah. And it's quite unusual for, for instance, you know, tumours or, or bleeds on the brain or something like that to get that big and only cause headache without causing anything else. Yeah. Um, so I think um, kind of moving on a bit, because we've talked a lot about um, history features and things there, um, little bits about examination, but I think it would be remiss of us not to um, talk about this in the light of COVID um, and how few patients um, are actually being seen face to face at the minute and a lot of the triage is happening um, over the phone. So in terms of thinking about headaches, um, which patients do you think would be important for us to, to see um, to do an examination on? So it's, it's a really good question and it's obviously more pertinent now than, than it's ever been before. Um, so in an ideal world, let's be clear, any patient coming with a headache that they think is bad enough to go and see their doctor warrants being examined. And that's because I think that examination is going to do two things. It's going to reassure you as the doctor that there's nothing too bad going on and the patient will be reassured. But we can't do that. Everyone with a headache can't get a face-to-face examination, but it's just not practically possible. We're so restricted still. So, I mean, it, it basically goes back to that idea of, you know, progressive headache and a symptomatic loss of function because anybody who's got something nasty going on in their head that's causing a headache that should also be causing loss of function so it's you know the patient who has got progressive visual disturbance so not an aura not not, not a one-off migraine aura a classical spreading scintillating aura but it's someone who's describing either progressive visual problems blurring or equally worrying really you know so-called transient visual obscurations which are the visual disturbance that people with raised intracranial pressure get. So when they stand up or bend over or change position, in fact, their vision greys out and then comes back. And then that's called a transient visual obscuration. It's classically seen in um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, and, and, and you'd need to see that patient because you'd need to look in the back of their eyes. I mean, there may be an alternative way of doing that, of course. Sometimes it's actually easier to get an appointment at the opticians where they can do fundal photography, which is COVID secure because you don't need to get close to anybody. Unless you've got your own fundal camera, you, you have to get pretty close to do fundoscopy. And then you're in PPE and it's a nightmare because it's hard to do fundoscopy, full stop. And if you want to do it, you know, with PPE on, it's double hard. Um, but at the opticians, you know, you can put your eye on the camera, they take the picture, everything gets wiped down afterwards, you get a beautiful picture to take away with you and job's done. Yeah. 
So that, that's, I guess, the main patient I'd want to see um, face-to-face for an examination because it's very unusual for you to see somebody with a headache who doesn't complain of any neurological symptoms and then for you to examine them and for you to find something. It'd be really weird to have an incidental sign that didn't have a symptom to go with it in a headache. Now, that's different in other bits of neurology. So in other bits of neurology, it's quite important to examine somebody and you find uh, what, what, what the patient didn't know was there. Headache is different to that. So a disease in the brain that bad enough to cause headache will cause a symptom at the same time as a sign. It's not going to give you incidental signs. The exception to this is papilledema, unfortunately. So raised intracranial pressure could give you papilledema. As you've said, the, the optometry is really useful for that, though, then. Um, so if we've got a headache with no functional loss of the patient, then we've got the optometry that we could use. But if we've got a headache with a functional loss, they could come to us for examination. Yeah, that's, that's how I would look at it. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing myself, to be honest with you, at the moment. Okay. Um, and then on to COVID, um, we just thought we'd ask, because there's a few patients we're hearing from who have got headaches during COVID or after COVID. Um, have, have you found this? Are you, are you noticing any patterns, any kind of advice or things to share from your side? I think it's a bit too early to say. I don't think that there's anything clear at the moment. I think we know a few things. So we know that when some patients have the acute viral illness, they get a headache as one of their you know, early symptoms. And, and, you know, that I think we recognise that headache is quite common in it, but it's quite common in most viral illnesses. Most people with flu have headache. So it, it's in that respect, there's no surprise there. So what I do think, and, you know, this isn't going to surprise anybody who's been listening to this, is that if you're unwell with something and then you're either unwell acutely or if uh, in the recovery phase, you're still unwell and you're not sleeping well and you're stressed and you might get depressed or you're anxious or you're not able to eat properly or exercise properly. If you were a migraineur, would that bring out your migraine? Yeah, of course it would. <laughs> Those are the migraine triggers, aren't they? Not sleeping properly, being tired, being stressed. So, though, and you know, what will I do to make myself stay awake? I'm so fatigued. I'll drink 12 coffees a day. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I've seen that. I've seen patients who've developed pretty classical you know, migraineous headaches, mm-hmm. having had COVID, but that's fine. Just treat, just treat the migraine. That's that that overlaps with another sort of slightly tricky issue because you do get patients who've got sort of pain everywhere. They've got chronic widespread pain. One of the places they've got pain is in their head, and it can be difficult to know what to do with that. Um, but my personal approach is that I, I stick to the script really. If I can convince myself that the headache bit of their chronic widespread pain is migraineous, I treat it as migraine. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just try and crack on with that, really, because maybe that will be the most treatable bit of their chronic widespread pain. Yeah. So the treatment for migraine for most people is pretty straightforward. So most people will only ever require a decent acute treatment. And that's normally a combination. So you take paracetamol and an NSAID, mm-hmm. or you take paracetamol and an NSAID and Maxilon or another antiemetic, mm-hmm. or you take very high-dose aspirin and Maxilon. So like, you know, 900 milligrams of aspirin and 10 milligrams of Maxilon. Ma- Maxilon's me- metoclopramide, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. metoclopramide, yeah. yeah. So, so you get that in sort of, you know, that, that, that comes in ready-made preparations. Yeah. And for people with occasional headaches, that's great. And some people won't get on with that and they might try a triptan and maybe that'll work for them. So, so, the, so most people will only ever need that um, because their headaches are infrequent. Um, but the people that I'm keen to try and spot are those people whose frequency is just beginning to build up. And this is an opportunity to nip it in the bud 
before it gets to that chronic daily headache stage. Um, so that might be somebody whose migraines are going from, you know, once a month or two to twice a month to once a week. That's the point at which I don't think they need painkillers. They need an anti-migraine drug. Yeah. And actually they should be only using the painkiller on the day that it starts that bad headache. And otherwise they shouldn't be using painkiller. They should start their regular treatment at that point to get on top of their migraine. And the regular treatment is, you know, lifestyle modification. Why is your headache getting worse? Is it your shift pattern? Is it the sleep that you're not getting? Is it the caffeine that you're taking? Is it the codeine that you're taking? And go through all of that and then work out if you can rectify that and things don't automatically fix themselves or start to go back to normal, which is the best migraine preventing drug for them. And, you know, I always talk about the three main options for people. So you've got tricyclics, propranolol, and topiramate. And, and those are the big three. And the only thing that really makes me decide which one is better than the other is from discussing with the patient and finding out which one they want to take. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's because they can't take one of them, so they've got asthma, so they can't take propranolol. Or sometimes it's because, you know, there's an opportunity to co-treat something. So, so somebody with anxiety might benefit from propranolol. Um, somebody who was worried about their weight or their weight gain might benefit from topiramate. Somebody whose sleep is dreadful and that might even be worsening their migraine might benefit from amitriptyline at night time. Um, so I do try, I mean, I think, you know, that's, that, that's the main sort of conversation to have about, about, about drugs because there isn't much to choose between them. Um, so it's a case of finding out which one the patient really um, thinks will suit them best, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I like that, that kind of work out what they can't take because of other reasons and then talk to them about which one they'd prefer to have out of the things that are left. Yeah, I think so. Particularly for young women um, who don't have asthma, I generally am going for the beta blocker just in terms of topiramate and yep. and pregnancy and things like that. So Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's by far the easiest to, to give. And yeah. I suppose that's probably why I start with more commonly than anything else. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's pretty well tolerated, certainly better tolerated than amitriptyline. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely find when I'm starting somebody on amitriptyline, um, at their, even when I try and temper expectations that this is going to be t- titrating them, it's quite, I do find that people will stop quite early on and that we'll get very suboptimal experience from it. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. And I think it's about managing expectations for sure. And it depends a little bit on how long someone's had their headache disorder for. So the easiest situation paradoxically is the person who's had headache for the longest. So they've had headache for years and you can explain to them, well, you've had it for years. It's going to take a while to settle this down, by which I mean months. Okay. Um, but even someone with, with, with a shorter history, I just explain, you know, the bare bones of it, which is, you know, these drugs could take up to three months to work. Right. That's how long it takes for some people to respond. And, you know, it's three months at the maximum tolerated dose, not from day one. So if we're starting you know, amitriptyline, we're going to start at 10 or 25, we're going to go to then 20 or 50, depending on how much you think the patient's going to cope with, going to probably, if they're not responding, you know, every three to four weeks, bump it. That's the sort of interval I'm talking about. Okay. And then get them to 75. And, and then at, then the clock starts ticking. And when they get to three months, if they haven't responded, then it's time to change and go on to the next drug. If they have responded, then I'll have a conversation with them and say, look, you have responded. There is still time for you to respond more. This may not be as good as it gets. It may get better than this. What do you want to do? Do you want to stick with it? See if it gets better? Or do you want to try a new drug? And and that's a decision that you can have together. Um, Same with, you know, to pyramid. So it starts at 25. Every two weeks, it goes up by 25. And you're aiming for 50 twice a day. 
you know, you're at three months um, before you can really make a decision. But, you know, if at that three months, if it hasn't worked, I, I've tried to be pretty ruthless about, you know, switching to the next one. The things to watch out for, I think, are, you know, the person who who isn't actually taking it for whatever reason. Yeah. And exploring that. So is that because they don't really believe they've got migraine? That's quite common, I think. Um, or in fact, have they read something in the side effects they're just terrified by, which is fair enough because the side effects for these drugs at face value look terrifying. But we know that in fairness, they're pretty well tolerated drugs. Yeah. Or, or, you know, is it in fact, because whilst they're very, you know, diligent with their medications um, and they're taking their propranolol twice a day, they're also diligent at taking their codeine twice a day. And I'm upfront about telling patients, I say, if you keep on taking your codeine every day, it doesn't matter which drug I give you, it won't work. Okay. Yeah. So kind of finishing off then a couple of extra little questions for the end. Um, good resources um, for us guys. What, what are our go-tos for, for headaches? So I guess um, for a quick aid memoir, so there is a Greater Manchester Headache Management Pathway. Um, so one of my colleagues, Adam Zamansky, wrote that a few years ago. It was updated at the time the NICE guidelines came out. So it's NICE compliant um, and it's very step-by-step. It goes through red flags and amber flags, yeah. which is sort of what I've talked a bit about today. It also gives treatment guidance in it. And it's essentially two sides of A4. For patients, I recommend the Migraine Trust website, migrainetrust.org. And, you know, it has information about the drugs they're likely to be prescribed by their doctors, so they can read about that. It has information about lifestyle modification. And I think that's useful. What would be your key take-home message from today? Okay, so I guess that obviously the key take-home message is that most headaches are migraine. Just got to get your head around it. Once you get your head around it, it becomes really easy to diagnose patients with headache disorders because most of them have migraine but also then the people that don't have migraine will stick out like a sore thumb Mm -hmm. because they'll suddenly not fit you know and all the different flavors of migraine we've talked about so so they'll be easier to spot and remember you know most of the other headache disorders are even easier to spot than migraine Mm -hmm. so if you think about trigeminal neuralgia or cluster headache they're so weird they're so bizarrely specific they're actually quite easy to spot so that makes life easier um and then you know just remembering at all costs so migraine is a treatable condition it is the most common neurological condition we have and yet by happen chance it's also the most treatable yeah so that's really good and then when it comes to treatment it's the 3d approach so diagnosis be confident believe it make sure your patient believes it and then when it comes to the medications be confident with your doses escalate them appropriately and duration don't stop treatment too soon that is very common both on the part of the patient and the clinician stopping it too soon 3D. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Matt. This has been excellent. It's been enlightening. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, it was really nice to talk to um to Matt there about about headaches. I think it's quite a difficult topic sometimes, um, and it's so broad and and I was a bit worried about how we'd be able to to cover it in an episode. But um I think that we've we've got quite a nice overview there and 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 some really good learning points and, and tips to take away from it. What what do you think you're gonna take away, Sarah? Yeah, I know before the episode and when we were talking about how to ask the questions, one of the things we were keen on is is just getting some really practical advice about how to manage headaches because like differentiating between headaches, when you hear the classical features, it's really easy in teaching sessions to think that those are those those scripts, like you were saying, um, about yeah. common typical presentations. But then in real life, nothing is really that typical and you can often get stumped by a headache. 
Um, so it was it was really interesting. I don't think I've heard that approach to where you just everything's migraine until otherwise. Yeah, and I really liked when he was talking about his take home points, the three Ds diagnosis. I've definitely seen people back when I've not been confident in in diagnosing them. Yeah, um, uh, and then the doses and the duration. That was a big yeah. learning point. Definitely that three months at the top dose was a massive learning point yeah i completely agree the, the that that maximum tolerated dose for three months is just not something that i um would always have stuck to necessarily because yeah. it's very hard um but i think setting the expectations at the beginning whenever you're putting the patient on it it's it's similar to some of the the other episodes that we've done when we've talked about management mm-hmm. it's just that expectation setting um mm-hmm. and then and then the patient's more likely to comply Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but yeah I um, I agree I thought that 3Ds um, at the end was really good um, and I um, I've written down the, 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 the little framing that he gave at the beginning about things that, to consider in your head whenever you're seeing these headaches so the the, the serious causes um, it, it's not usual for to present as just a headache it's headache plus is the way that I've considered it before um, yeah. and the fact that the experience is different for everybody that experiences headaches um and his information about um most are migraine um, which, which i think really came through on the on yeah. the episode and it isn't the way that i've considered it before yeah uh, yeah i really liked when he was going through red and amber flags his description of thunderclap and that whole thing of yeah. the maximum intensity at one to five minutes is really the typical feature and uh, that's really useful yeah I think there are lots of really helpful tips in that. So yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, we've got a couple of different ways that you can do that. You can uh, tweet at us and our handle is at pckbpodcast. Um, we also have an email um, address that you can email us at and that's primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Yeah, and we have a survey that you can fill in. It's attached as a link to the episode description and we're grateful to everyone for filling those in, uh, both in, in Greater Manchester in the UK and throughout the rest of the world are getting a few through. So thank you very much to all of you. Yes, it's lovely to hear from um, from everyone. Um, and and we're, we are taking everybody's feedback on board and, and we're planning for the next 12 months. And, and hopefully you'll see some of those, the feedback that you've given us coming through in our planning. Yeah. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.